welcome to another message presented by the ministry of Christian Faith Fellowship. We are fulfilling the call of God on this ministry to preach the Word of God without compromise, raising up disciples who through faith in God will have a powerful impact on our world. May you be blessed through the message that we have to share with you today. May God's very best be yours. Anyway, I have a title for my message, if that matters, but uh, I heard this title, I don't know, 17 or 18 years ago down at Cowboy Church. I found a set of teaching tapes from Andrew Womack. And the part about the cassettes, most, a lot of you younger ones probably don't know what cassettes are, but it was a box of cassettes, and the title of the message was, You've Already Got It. I've added a little to mine, and I've said, but do we know, but do you know what you have? But on the front of this box that really caught my eye was this picture of a dog chasing his tail. You've already got it. What's he going to do when he finds that tail? He's probably going to smart a little bit, and he's going to realize that thing I've been chasing for 15 minutes is already mine. <laughs> so I'm not quite going to go the way Andrew did, because I hate to do that. So I'm going to start in Luke chapter 9. We're going to talk about disciples. We're going to talk about ourselves today a little bit and um, try to figure out why we don't always know what we already have. And I haven't figured it out yet either why we do this, but we all do it. I know because I've seen it happen many, many times. In Luke chapter 9, uh, like I said, what we already, we already have we have already got everything. But do we know and believe what Jesus did for us and what he gave us so that we could, after he left, fulfill what he wanted us to do and walk out the life he wanted us to live here on earth? Many of us don't. Luke chapter 9, verse 1 starts out with him getting ready to send the 12 disciples off. He's been with them quite a while. They've been walking around. He's been watching them do work, and I guess he's decided it's time for you guys to go out there and prove yourself. I'm going to stay here, kick back under the tree. I'm going to relax. I'm going to give you power and authority over all demons. That's, I, like, I like it when Terry preaches because he always talks about that big word, all. What's in all? All is all against all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the, God, to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Power, that's God's power. Authority, that's permission to use that power. He gave that to them right there and sent them out. He told them how to go out. Take nothing for your journey. You put on your clothes this morning, you put on your shoes this morning, and you go. Don't take your staff, don't take your money bag, don't take none of the stuff that you think you need. You go with what's on your back. You're going to have to trust what I'm telling you. You're going to have to go out and let them take care of you as you preach the kingdom of God. So away they went. We don't know how long they were gone. But they departed to go, in, in verse 6, they departed to go and went through towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. They're doing it all, man. They're out there touching lives, preaching the kingdom. They're doing what he told us to do in Matthew 28, 18. 
or 28-19. Go ye into all the world. They're out there. He's not with them no more. They're by their cell. But they have everything that he had. He gave it to them. It says so right there in the scripture. So in a little while, like I said, we don't know how long, they come back. Drop down to verse 10. And it says, And the apostles, when they returned, told him all that they had done. And then he took them aside. But they're all excited. I mean, they got to be. If we were the 12, if 12 of us in here were the ones that Jesus said, you, you, and you go, here's what you got, go do this. And we went out and saw demons cast out. We went out and saw the, heal, the, the sick healed, the, the, the lame walk, the deaf hear. We'd come back pretty excited. So they're back here pretty excited and talking to him. And he's going to take them off privately and do a little debrief, I assume, because it's time to talk about what, what happened. But that didn't quite work out. Because the multitude knew he was there. Verse 11. And anywhere Jesus was, there was always a crowd. He drew a crowd. So now this is the Charlie interpretation of what's going to happen down through here. Jesus now takes forefront. The disciples are over here by the tree. Kicked back in the shade. Watching Jesus do the work for the multitude while he's preaching on the mountain. He's going to speak. Where'd the multitude come from? I have to think about this. I, I, when I read the Bible, I'm kind of weird. I like to put myself in the place where the story's being told. I've been, I've been up that road from, from um, Bethany to Jerusalem, past that fig tree a thousand times. I know I've never been there, but I know exactly what that road looks like in my mind. I know what that fig tree looks like now. I know what it looked like the day after he killed it. I've seen it. I, I, I imagine all this stuff. So here he is preaching, and I see the disciples. They're kind of laid back. And it's getting late. And it says they all came to him, but I always figure that when they all came to him, there's only one guy that does the talking, and that's Big Mouth Peter. <laughs> Peter's always got something to say about something. So Peter comes to him and tells him in verse 12, when the day began to wear, to wear away, the 12 came to him, send them away, man. It's time to eat. We don't have anything here to give them. We're going to have to send them into the surrounding town, see if McDonald's is still open, see what we got to do somewhere in order to feed all these people. There's 5,000 men there. If they all got wives, now there's 10,000. And if they each got kids, we, whoa. There's a lot of people. But listen to what Jesus says. You give them something to eat. And again, in my mind's eye, I see these 12 guys. When they say, send them away, they're starting to walk off. And Jesus says, you feed them. Excuse me? We got five loaves and two fish. That ain't going to be a happy meal for this bunch of people. How are we going to feed them? Now, if we back back up to the beginning here, back to verse 1, it says he gave them power and authority. And in all these scriptures, I don't see any place where when they came back, Jesus says, okay, I gave it to you a few days ago. I'm going to take it back now until you need it again. As far as I'm concerned, in this scripture, when Jesus said for them to feed him, 
He knows them guys still got the power and authority to do it. So on they go. They get the fish. They get the bread and they give it to Jesus. Jesus raises it up. He's going to do his thing. He blesses it and gives it back to them. Again, in my imagination, I can see Peter with that basket of bread and fish taking it to the first group. They got them sitting down in groups of 50 and they're all resting up and he takes the basket and goes, just take a little piece, okay? This is all we got. But as he goes from group to group, then he starts to notice something. The baskets never get empty. Now he's seeing the power and authority working again. Now they're seeing it all happen one more time. And they feed the whole bunch. And they gather up what's left. And they gather up 12 full baskets of remnant. Power and authority. You've already got it. Now, as on through verse chapter 9, we go to the mountain. Jesus and, and Jesus is going to take three of his guys with him, go up on the hill, going to be transfigured. All this is going to go on. But the other nine are downstairs. All of them didn't get to go see this. He's got his three favorites. No. <laughs> no. The other nine, he yeah, has armor bearers. The other nine are down at the bottom of the hill. Now, they're still remembering. They've got to still be overjoyed about what happened back in the beginning of Luke chapter 9. You know, I, we healed the sick. We, we raised the dead. We did all this stuff. And here comes this dude with, a, with his son who's possessed by a demon. Now, I know this ain't in the scripture. This is what I see. We're going to see what happened. But I've got to believe this happened before because it says so. They brought him his son. He told them what's going on. The same thing he's going to tell Jesus down here in just, a little, in just a few verses. That this boy is possessed by a demon. The demon throws him down. The demon kicks him around. The demon throws him in the fire. Throws him in the, <clears throat> excuse me, in the water. When he leaves him, he leaves him pretty hard. He bruises him. Can you guys cast him out? Sure we can. We've done this before. We know how this works. So they go to cast the demon out. I'm still telling you the story now, not, not, the, not the scripture. And I believe when they went to cast the demon out, that demon manifested himself. And in my heart of hearts, I believe they had never seen that happen before. They're going through their time in the beginning, and they come to, to Brandy there, and she's got a demon, and, and they, can say, they can tell it, and they just cast it out. Nothing, nothing weird happens. But this kid went to foaming at the mouth, Wallering on the ground, going in the fire, and the boys backed up. Whoa. I don't know if we can handle this. So they left it. Jesus and the other three come down off the mountain, and you see the scripture. We're all the way down to about verse 38. Jesus has come back, and the man in the multitude comes to him saying, teacher, I implore you. I'm begging you, man. I don't know what to do. Look on my son, for he's my only child. And behold, the spirit seizes him, and on what I told you, how he, how he manifests himself. And we, we, we gave him to your disciples, and they couldn't do nothing. 
They tried, but it didn't work. So Jesus was all sympathetic with the boys. Sorry, guys, it didn't work. Let me see if I can help you out. No, that ain't what he did. Excuse my English, Beth. <laughs> Jesus says to him, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how much longer do I got to hang around with you guys? Bring your son here. So the man brings the child to him and the demon manifested himself again and Jesus said, whoa, I don't know if I can handle it. Ain't that what he said? Oh, no. Jesus told the demon, hit the road, Jack. You got no place here. Get out. The guys didn't realize again what they had. How often do we forget what we have. Jump over to Luke chapter 10. Now we're going to talk about some more disciples, a couple more anyway. He had 12 there that did the work. When we get over here, there's going to be 70. And he does the same thing. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others, sent them two by two before his face, into every city and every place he was going to go. Now, this is a little different in the scripture about what he did with the 12. He's going to send the 70 out there to, to, to open the door, to make a way for him. That's the part of witnessing. That's the part we're supposed to do. I may go out and witness to one of you people or one of these people here in Ponder, and all I do is open the door for Matt to water I'll plant, plant the seed, Matt will water, and God will get the increase at some point. But that's what these guys are doing. They're going into every town Jesus is going to go to and open the door. This guy's coming. Be ready for him. The harvest is great, verse 2, verse two and the laborers are few. And that's something we need to pray for. We pray for our families to be saved. We pray for people to be born again. But what we need to be praying for in some of these places is laborers in the harvest field. The harvest is ripe. Let's send the laborers out. It may not be me. I may not be able to reach him with, with, with my testimony, with the things I've done. But you might. We need laborers in the harvest field. Go your way. Behold, I send you as lambs into wolves. And again, don't take no, no extra clothes. Don't take no extra money. Count on the people you go to witness to. So they went. And they went. All the way down to verse 17. And these 70 guys come back and they are ecstatic. It says right there, they return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said, well, duh. No. There's two, I got two thoughts about this next verse, verse 18. And one of them is mine, and you'll have to forgive me if I'm way off base, but this is how I see it. I know how it's taught. He, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the heaven. And we all know that Jesus was there when God said, hit the road. And like a lightning bolt, Satan fell. But when these guys came back with that revelation, this is what I see. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from his dominion on this earth because of the revelation you guys now have. It's kind of like what Peter said when he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
Jesus said, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. On this revelation, I'm going to build my church. When them guys realize what they had, when we realize what we have, we can see Satan fall from his throne. He'll have no more authority, no more dominion, no more nothing over any of us. And then, I like this next part too. We're going to go on down a little bit. After he's told them all what's going on, uh, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy and nothing, no thing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, don't rejoice about the demons being subject to you, but rejoice that your name's recorded in heaven. And in verse 21, Jesus, and this is how I see it. Man, I tell you, I love this stuff, this stuff. Jesus walks off from these guys, and he's off by himself, and he goes, yes, they got it. Because it says right there, and Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and thanked God who he had given it to. So he sent them out like lambs against wolves, but when they come back, they were overjoyed with what they knew they could do. So Jesus rejoiced. He's all thrilled with what's going on. I'm going to hang out in Luke a long time, so we're going to go to Luke 15. We know this story has been preached a lot over the last few weeks and months about the prodigal son. But the part we never talk about is the second son, the oldest one. The whiner, the complainer. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 and 12, we'll start with. 11 says, Then he said, A certain man had two sons. Now, if you all got that in, in, in your head here and you got it in your eyes, read the next verse with me. Read it out loud and follow me. On verse 12, it says, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to who? Who? Both of them. Both of them got their portion of his livelihood. And by Hebrew law, the oldest had to get his first because he had to get a double portion. The whiner, the complainer later on down here in this story got a double portion but then we know what happened to the younger son he goes out in riotous living has himself a good time I don't remember none of mine thank God but we know how he lived and we know that when he came to himself when he finally hit himself upside the head and said you know what even dad's servants are living better than I am. I'm wallering around with the hogs trying to eat the husks off the corn that they got and I got no money, I got nothing. If I go home, I can just live as one of his servants and it'll be good. So the kid comes home, but the oldest son's mad because dad met him at the gate with the robe, with the fatted calf, the big barbecue, the big dance. Everything's going on and the older boy ain't coming in I don't want nothing to do with this 
I don't like this boy. He's done everything wrong. And dad comes out to get him. So here we are in about verse 30. Wait a minute. Yeah. But as soon as, as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. If you back up to 29, he actually professes a little bit of a lie in this verse, the, 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 the boy does. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you, I have never transgressed your commandments. He's a human. I got to believe he's transgressed something somewhere. That's, that's not part of it. <laughs> he devoured his livelihood with harlots. You killed the fatted calf for him. You wouldn't, you wouldn't even give me a goat so I could entertain my friends. And dad said, you've always been with me, son. Everything I have is yours. He'd already given it all to him. He'd already turned it all over to him, his, his, his livelihood, the things he was supposed to be getting. But for some reason, however many months or years this younger son was gone, he forgot that. All he knew was he was still there on the farm. He's still working. He's still doing everything he's supposed to do. And I can't even get a goat to take care of my friends for a barbecue. Dad told him, all you had to do is go get one. It was yours. Luke chapter 11, back up a little bit. What did he have to do? What did he need to do to get what he wanted from his father? Ask. Three-letter word, A-S-K, ask. He really didn't need to do that because it was his. But in a minute, I'm going to show you how that word works. Luke chapter 11, verse 9 and 10. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find it. Knock, and it'll be opened to you. For everyone who, who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it shall be opened. There's no maybes. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. Everything in Scripture is absolute. You ask, you'll receive. You seek, you'll find, you knock, and it will be open. It's just the way it works. So we'll take a look at the word ask. Some of this I, I learned listening to uh, Charles Capps. What a guy. One of the bib biblical definitions of the word ask is to demand. I taught this once in my Bible study down in Seeley, and a couple people kind of give me a gasp. <gasps> Demand from God? First, you have to understand the word, demand. I mean, I can go up to somebody and grab them by the shirt collar and demand something from them. That's not what this word demand means. How many of you have a checking account? When you write a check... You put a demand on the bank for what's yours. 
and the bank will take what you ask for and give it. When you demand from God, when you ask from God, you're asking for what is already yours. And God will make it happen. I, I preached a message down there, I don't know, it's been a couple years ago. Uh, the title of the message was, My Pastor Thinks I'm Crazy. And, and I titled it that because he actually told me that at one point. When Shelley was first diagnosed with uh, Parkinson's, every time she would go forward for prayer, when pr the prayer line was open, everybody came up and assumed they wanted her, wanted her to pray for her healing. And I wouldn't go. I wouldn't get in the prayer circle. And finally he asked me, Why? I said, because I don't want you guys praying for her healing anymore. She's already got it. He didn't understand that for a little while until him and I had time to banter the issue back and forth. And they finally quit praying for her healing. So as I preached this message about what we've already got and how her healing was already provided and on and on and on. At the end, I said, forgive me, Pastor Darrell. So she's already got her healing. We're just waiting for the manifestation. No, that night I got a call from Pastor Darrell. <laughs> he had listened to the message. And he said, you did really fine, brother, all the way down to that last line. If you're waiting for the manifestation, you're not in faith. And I had already thought about it. And I told him, yes, sir, I know. <laughs> I messed that up. Believe you receive when you pray and you'll have whatever you say. If I believe I received it and I have it already, why do I ask for it again? It's another part of my silly imagination. I see God sitting on his throne up there with Jesus at his right hand and somebody prays today for something. And then in a half hour, they go out and pray for it again. He looks at Jesus and says, didn't we already do that? I know he doesn't do that, but. That's the way I see it. So uh, to demand from God just means that you're asking for what is already yours. What he's already given you. Three things I'm going to tell you that he's given us. And I know there's a whole lot more than that. But these three. The number one thing that we have from him is power. Now I've heard in prayer circles in a lot of places. People pray and ask for more power. Okay, Tim the tool man. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1 verses 19 and 20. We all know Paul's powerful prayer in Ephesians. But he talks about the power of the Holy Ghost that raised Christ from the dead. Lives in me, you, all of us. If the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you, how much more power can you get? I can't fit any more in there. I just have to let it flow out of me. And how does it flow? It flows by the word. In Genesis chapter 1, the most simplest part of the whole Bible, it says that the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. He was just hanging out there, waiting for something to happen. And when God said, light be the Holy Spirit moved. Amen. So the Holy Spirit, kind of like some of our angels that we 
<coughs> excuse me, some of the angels that we have are un is unemployed most of the time in our life because he's hovering there, hanging out with you, waiting for you to speak the word of God. And that's all he moves on. Thank God. Because I heard a story in this teaching from Andrew about a woman who was in love with Kenneth Copeland. She was so in love with this man, she actually had a cardboard cutout, life-size cardboard cutout of him in her house. And the prayer that she couldn't understand that never got answered was she prayed for, the, for God to take Gloria out so she could have Kenneth. And she couldn't understand why, the God, why God hadn't done that. I don't think it's in his will to do that. So that's, when you speak the word, it has to be according to his will. When we speak the word according to his will, we know one thing. We know he hears us. If it's not according to his will, he don't hear it. Power. He's given us faith. And I've heard people pray for that too. Do you know that praying for faith isn't scriptural? Because faith doesn't come by prayer. Faith comes by and hearing and hearing the preached word of God. But you ask for more faith. I listened to Matt's message a few weeks ago. And I always, I don't, I don't like the New King James translation of Romans chapter 12 verse 3. Because it says, for I say to you, for I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think more highly than he ought to think of himself. As God has dealt to each one of us, King James says, the measure of faith. I mean, most of your Bibles say a measure. A thimble is a measure. An eyedropper is a measure. A quarter cup, a measure. But a five-gallon bucket is the measure we're going to use today. The measure of faith God gave to us is the same one he used in Mark eleven twenty-two. The faith of God. He's dealt to us the measure of faith. The same measure of faith God has And we're to use it. Another verse that I, I got from Charles Capps, and I really love this story that he tells about the mustard seed. I've gone through all my life with that little necklace thing, with that little mustard seed in it, because everybody says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, but the Bible don't say that. The Bible says, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mountain or this mulberry tree or whatever you want to talk about in the Bible, be thou removed, cast into the sea, and it will move. Now, Charles Capps had heard a story about the mustard seed, that the mustard seed was the only seed that you can't hybrid. You can't pollinate, cross-pollinate the mustard seed. He wasn't sure about it, so he went to a friend of his at the University of Arkansas in agriculture, 
And he studied it a little bit and he come back to him and he said, that's absolutely true. If you try to cross pollinate the mustard seed, it won't grow. You can put, you can cross pollinate corn with cucumbers. And something about the cucumber makes the corn give off an odor that certain bugs won't go to it. But if you cross pollinate the mustard seed, it's done. If you add anything to your faith or take anything away from your faith, it won't work. Faith is the absolute trust in the word of God that it will work and do what it says it'll do. No more, no less. We can't change it. Why not? Rabbit trail. We talked about Mark eleven twenty two. When when after after the boys come by and saw the tree was dead, they were all amazed. And Jesus said to them, "Have faith in God." And I know pastors preached it. I've heard it several other places. If you've got a center column reference Bible, and you know it says that that actually says in the Greek, "Have the faith of God." Have the God kind of faith. What's he talking about? For the two days that they walked up and down that hill, which I've seen vividly in my imagination. Lord, I know every dust particle on that hill. Jesus saw this fig tree. Had leaves on it. If a fig tree has leaves on it, it's supposed to have fruit. He's hungry. He got up late over there in Bethany and they didn't get their eggs and bacon for breakfast. So they're walking to, well, maybe not bacon, but something. <laughs> anyway, they're walking up the hill and Jesus sees the fig tree. It's got leaves on it. It's supposed to have figs on it. I'm going to have me some figs for breakfast. So he walks up to the tree and there's nothing there. No fruit. And it says in the Bible that he spoke to the tree and said, nobody will ever eat fruit from you again forever. That's rough translation. But the Bible also says, and there's no unimportant words in the scripture, and the Bible says, and his disciples heard him. He spoke it loud enough for them to hear him. And I have to figure, Peter, Peter said to the other 11, the boss is really hungry. He needs his Snickers bar or something because he's talking to a tree. What is wrong with this dude? He's talking to a tree. Well, a couple of days later, they come by and Peter looks and says, Hey, teacher, that tree you cursed is dead. And that's when God and Jesus said, have the faith of God. The analogy that I have of that tree is the analogy of most Christians that we see out in the world. They've got the necklace. They've got the big Bible under their arm. They've got the I love Jesus bumper sticker on their car. They've got everything that makes them look like a Christian except one thing. No fruit. The Bible says you'll know me by my fruit. Not how many Bibles I carry. Not how many words and tongues I can speak in a minute. Not how much I can quote the Bible. It's by my fruit. The last thing I see that he gave us, those, of those three, is anointing. We all know this scripture, Acts 10, 38. 
how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. If God anointed Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit and power, why would he not do it for me and you? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he does for one, he'll do for another. He's no respecter of person. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, Jesus, so are we in this world. As a born-again Christian, tongue-talking, Bible-believing, fruit-bearing Christian, I am in this world what Jesus was when he walked the earth. No different. Well, we may be different because that, that's another day. Because we're all his heirs. And this is one of those scriptures that I really have trouble wrapping my brain around because I can't do God's math. I used to like math in school. I did algebra pretty good. I never got way beyond that, but I, I, I like math. But a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. If one can put a thousand to flight, two can put 10,000 to flight. I never saw that in algebra. I can't figure that out. But he says in, in, in Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, the Holy Spirit bears witness with my spirit, because they live together in the same body, that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. Now, I asked you about your checking accounts. How many of you have joint checking accounts? Okay, Brandy, you guys got a joint checking account. And we're just going to say you've got $10,000 in that account. <laughs> What's going to happen if you and your husband both write a check for $10,000? But you have a joint account. So now we go back to God's math. I'm a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You know what that means? Everything God gave to Jesus, everything God gave to Jesus, he gave to me. And you, and you, and you. The same amount, the same everything. I wouldn't want to do that with my joint checking account. But I love that thought. That everything he has is mine. And I, I don't have to be haughty or anything about that because all of us have the same thing. We've all been given the same. <clears throat> ambassadors. We've been called to be ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.20. Ephesians 6.19 and 20. Both talk about us being ambassadors for Christ. You know that an ambassador from the United States to India carries the authority of the United States government on his shoulders. 
Because the definition of an ambassador has full authority to represent the government he or she was sent from. Full authority. So as ambassadors for Christ, we carry the same authority to represent God on this earth as he did. It's all ours. It all belongs to us. It was all given to us right here in Matthew 28, 18, when Jesus handed over the full power of attorney to everybody. All power in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Go. Everybody who's studied this out, everybody who understands this, that word go is the power of attorney. He's taken the power and authority that was given to him and handing it over. Here's the paper. You go do it. You go do it. You heal the sick. You raise the dead. You see the blind eyes open. You see the people born again walking with me. Our job. Go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every nation, making disciples. I have a job to do. That's another problem that we have as Christians is that we want the job to take place right here on Sunday morning and for the next six days I'll just wait and see what he's going to bring me next Sunday. We need to take what he brings us here every Sunday, every Wednesday, every Sunday night and put it into practice. He said that a few weeks ago about the difference in the milk of the word and the meat of the word. You're receiving the milk of the word as you're learning. Once you've learned and you become more mature in the word, now you go and do the word. That's the meat. It's not stronger preaching. It's not more intense preaching. It's not more bigger words. It's all about using what you've learned and going out there and doing it. Second Peter 1, 3 as his divine power is given to us all. There's that big word again. All things. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him, Jesus, who called us to glory and virtue. And then in closing, John 14, 12. We all are very familiar with this scripture and probably misuse it. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these because I go to be with my father. At some point in this walk with, with God, he gave us everything we needed to do the job. We don't need to be begging God and asking God and pleading with God to help us to do all this stuff that we already are supposed to know how to do. Because if we're meditating on the word, if we're doing what the Bible says, if we're speaking the word the way it's supposed to be spoke, it'll all work. So how can we do this if we haven't already received permission to use the very power of God in our lives? We find that power explained and given to us in his word. Everything is there. He came from heaven to earth to show the way. I love that song. Miss Cindy Way used to sing it. He sings it at, our, at the church in, in, in Seeley. He came from heaven to earth.
to show the way. Earth to the cross, my debt to pay. Cross to the grave, grave to the sky. But the first four Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's what Jesus is doing as he walks the earth. With, all, with these 12 disciples, he's showing them how they can live. This is how you guys can live. Watch what I do and imitate it. Do it just like I did. I, I guess that's hard for us to see. We're to be his hands here on earth. He was and is the living word. First John, or John 1 verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I asked that question once in the Bible study too, and I got a response from this one sitting on the front row in the, in the blue shirt. Because I asked the question this way, What is Jesus? She says, What do you mean, what is Jesus? I said, what is Jesus? Well, he's our Savior. He's the Son of God. He's, no, he's the Word, period. We, have, we, we, we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We could, baptize, we could baptize in the name of the Father and the Word and the Holy Spirit be the same result. Because that's what Jesus was in the beginning. He was the Word. I don't mean to pick on you. <laughs> He dwelt among us that we might learn from what he did and how he lived. It's all been given to us. We've already got it. Now, I want to borrow my phone a second because I want to give you just a little bit of testimony if I got a minute of mine. I, uh, Paul said... In the description of himself, that he was of the sinners, the chief. He was the chief sinner. Well, I uh, ran a close second. I was really good at sinning. I was a professional. I was born again in 1976. One morning on a hangover. I just, I'd been out of the Air Force for about three years. I uh, living at home, mom, dad. I'm 26 years old, no, 24 years old, and I was partying, working, partying, but I was doing other things to mom and dad that they didn't know about, and we won't go into that. But it suffices to say it wasn't good. And one morning, while mom was downstairs figuring out her checkbook, she discovered some of the things I'd been doing. And I heard her. She's a, she was a good Christian woman. My mom was a good Christian woman. She's right there on the streets of gold. But I heard her. I was kind of hung over, laying on my bed. And upstairs she came. And she didn't knock on the door. She kicked the door open. She said, you get your out of bed. Get your clothes on. You're coming to church with me now. Church was not what I wanted that morning. Ooh. A little hair of the dog might have been good. I don't, I don't know what I needed. but Well, I know what I needed now because I got it. She drug me to church that morning. I don't remember the message. And I heard Pastor say it a few nights ago that he's known people who have had the born-again experience who didn't know it. I didn't know it. When he was done, I heard him start the altar call. And the next thing I remember 
is being at the altar. I don't know how I got there. I don't remember walking up there. I, maybe I flew. I don't know. But there I was, bawling my eyes out, being prayed over, and I received the, the Lord as my, as my Savior. Well, like I said, I'd been out of the Air Force for a little over three years, almost three and a half, and I'd been trying to get back in. And they weren't going to let me because I'd been out too long. It was, just, it was after Vietnam. Everything was winding down. They're getting rid of people. So, I, I, I mean, I did everything. I wrote to the Secretary of the Air Force. I wrote letters to everybody I wanted back so bad. Well, after I got born again, we prayed about it. I think it was probably three weeks after I was saved, I got a call from a recruiter in Springfield, Missouri. We were living in Branson at the time. And I got a call from this recruiter in Springfield, Missouri. They said, I've seen your name, and we're wondering if you're interested in coming back. Praise God. Sure. What they were looking for was people with my skill, my skill, because they were losing them. The Air Force was transitioning from piston-driven airplanes, radio motors, to jets. But they still had a few around, and they didn't have the people to service them. So they're looking for us. So I'm back in the Air Force. I'm also having trouble with my marriage. Not this one. <laughs> no trouble here. I thought, well, if God can work this miracle, he can fix my marriage. So we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed, and I got a divorce. Well, it's taken a long time, but about 20 years ago, I realized why that happened. You know, it takes two to make a marriage. No matter how bad I want this one to work, if she don't, God can't fix it because he can't go against her will. Well, as soon as that marriage didn't work, guess what I did? I quit. I want this God. What kind of God is this? I mean, the Air Force is a good thing, but marriage is important. So I quit. And that's how I lived my life for about, oh, 30 years or better. In and out. In and out. I, I call myself in my testimony when I give it all that I was the chief backslider. Well, in 2002, at a little cowboy church in Brenham, Texas, or Bell, Sealy, Texas, her and I were living together. Oh my God. Living in sin. She wanted to meet my parents. I said, that ain't going to happen. My mom won't let you in the house as long as we're not married. She, it ain't going to happen. And besides that, if we call her and talk to her, she's going to say, are you going to church? Are you doing this? Are you, I don't want to hear that stuff, Shelly. I don't want to talk to mom. She said, well, why don't we go to church? What? You have to understand, this is a Lutheran. So we're driving between Belleville and Sealy one afternoon, and she sees the sign for all-around cowboy church. She's an old country girl, likes horses. Well, let's try this one. So we started going there, thanks to her. About the second Sunday we were there, we have a girl at the church down there. That, her name's Joni. And when she gets in the spirit, she'll shake the whole room. She gets to trim her and then shake it. And Shelly saw that as a Lutheran and said, what's wrong with her? And nothing. I'll explain it to you later. So one Sunday morning, I walked the aisle to rededicate. She followed me. Don't know why. She didn't know why, but she prayed the prayer there. Anyway, this is my story, not hers. I truly rededicated my life to God. I truly did it. However, 
And this is where faith comes and not by sight. You remember when you first got born again, that feeling you had? I remember mine because, man, I was so hungry for the word. When I first got born again, every minute I had, I was in the Bible. I mean, I devoured that thing. I didn't have no feeling. I didn't have the hair rise up on the back of my neck or have that warm fuzzy. I, it wasn't there. And for almost a year, I had decided he didn't take me back. God don't want me no more. I've done so much. He's done with me. So I went to church with mom and dad one Sunday when we were up in Kansas visiting. And I talked to the associate pastor there and I told him just how I felt. And he said, listen, don't let that feeling take root. God has taken you back. God has taken you back. Okay, okay, I got you, I got you. Well, I didn't believe it. I did not believe it. Until one Sunday morning, I'm sitting in church and Pastor Sonny brought up a scripture. All he did was say the scripture title, chapter, and verse. And in my mind, I said, I know that. I know where he's going. I'm sorry. And that's when I realized that God will never turn his back on you. Because when I remembered that scripture, I remembered this one here too. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance those things I have taught you. When that happened, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that God took me back. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He's our teacher and our reminder. All that scripture I'd read for a year or so at home, just eating the word, was still in here. But every Sunday he preached, he brought up a new message. He brought up a new scripture and I didn't know what he's talking about. I had no idea. I did, but I didn't until that day. And the Holy Spirit revealed it to me. And ever since. Everything that God's given you is yours from him as a gift. And you've already got it. We pray you were blessed by the message we were able to share with you today. For more spiritual resources that can help you in your walk with God, or to find out more about our ministry, just go to our website at cffchurch.com. You will find additional teachings by video, audio, and printed resources that will be a blessing to you. May God's very best be yours.